when it comes to business and most other things in life, other people around us do play a large role in how we feel about projects, how we feel about our ambitions. Some people bring us up, some people drag us down, some people just anchor us in actual reality. Today, I wanna to share some thoughts going into this new year about people that actually can bring us down and when and why we might ignore them or listen to them. Hope you like this episode, stay tuned. Hi, I'm Tim Jordan, and in every corner of the world, entrepreneurship is growing. So join me as I explore the stories of successes and failures. Listen in as I chat with the risk takers, the adventurous, and the entrepreneurial veterans. We all have a dream of living a life fulfilling our passions, and we want a business that doesn't make us punch a time clock, but instead runs around the clock in the AM and the PM. So get motivated, get inspired. You're listening to the AM PM podcast. When I went off to college, I was not a particularly great student. My grades were not always excellent, and I always got by just, I guess, out of uh, blind ambition or blind brains. I don't know what you call it. I never really studied much, but I was always pretty smart, which is actually kind of discouraging because I probably could have done some pretty amazing things if I'd actually applied myself. But when I came back from my freshman first semester in college, it was winter. I went to college about a thousand miles away from home, so I didn't make it home very often. I remember coming home that first winter break, and I had had an epiphany in college. See, when I went to college, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. I didn't know if I was going to go into forestry or business or whatever it was going to be. But I had no idea that I would be so interested in biology and medicine. And I had a good friend who lived next door to me that was a pre-med student. And just talking to him, hanging out with him, maybe occasionally cheating off of his biology exams because he sat next to me. I got interested in biology and I got interested in medicine. And I thought to myself, you know, I've grown up in this household that epitomized lackluster performance. And sorry to my siblings if you're listening, but Hopefully you guys agree with me. We were never pushed to achieve much. We were never really expected to do much. And getting out of the house for the first time, my first semester, getting college, realizing, hey, I'm actually not stupid. I've actually got some uh, some capabilities. I've got some um, got some brains in this big old head. Maybe I can do something more than I ever expected. Maybe I could actually become a doctor or a lawyer or something like that. So. I'm home on my first Christmas break, and I've decided that I want to change my major to biology and start a career towards or start a, start a track towards medicine, uh, become a pre-med major, and I wanted to become a doctor. I thought, hey, this is ambitious, but I can probably do this if I'll actually apply myself and you know surround myself with the right people. And I remember riding in the car with my dad. We were riding to Home Depot. I'll never forget it. And we were just talking about how school is going, talking about life, catching up. And as we were approaching Home Depot, I told him, I said, hey, I'm going to change my major when I get back. And I'm going to change it to biology with an emphasis in pre-med. And I think that I want to start this process of becoming a doctor. And he was really quiet. So I just kept going. I kept saying, you know, I've never had the best grades, but it's because I never did my homework. I never studied. I always just skated by. But if I change that and I, you know, implement some habits of actually uh, trying harder, I can get my grades up. No problem. Um, but I think that I'm smart enough to do this. I know a lot of people that, you know, are doctors and lawyers that are, you know, <laughs> kind of dummies. They were just able to fight through school and do it. I said, I think I can do that. I think it's something I want to do. I want to do something that, uh, 
you know, my friends and family would be proud of something that eventually my kids would be proud of if I've ever blessed with kids. And I said, you know, we have one life to live. I want to take the most advantage of this. And he was really quiet. We pulled into the parking lot and kind of drove around the parking lot looking for a spot. And he pulled into a, a parking spot. And that's when he started talking. And he said, you know, Tim, he said, I want the best for you. He said, and sometimes wanting the best for you is telling you reality. I said, okay. He said, the reality is you are not smart enough to be a doctor. He said, you won't make it. He said, I want you to be successful. He said, so I want you to try to achieve something that is attainable for you. He said, I want you to go into another field that is more appropriate for you. Something that's not going to be as demanding, something that's not going to require as much focus and brain power and, you know, something that you can succeed at. He said, if you walk down this path, you're just going to be disappointed because you'll never hack it. You'll never make it. And I, I, I can still visualize like exactly the cars that were around us in the parking lot. I'll never forget that moment because it was kind of pivotal. And I thought, you know, I'm going to have an ounce of humility here. And I'm going to think to myself, maybe someone that's older than me knows better. Maybe someone that knows me is wiser. Maybe somebody like himself that has been around the block a few times and, you know, maybe he just knows and maybe he's right. Maybe if I do walk down this path, I'm just going to get discouraged. I'm going to get beat up. I'm just going to get devastated. I'm not going to hack it. I'm not going to make it. There are things that some people just can never do. And maybe me being a doctor is one of them. So I did not change my major to biology. I did not push towards that goal. I did not try to walk down that path. I left it. I took his advice and his guidance and determined I wasn't smart enough to do this. Well, some years later after college, uh, I decided I want to be a firefighter. And the city that I was trying to get hired on in was very competitive uh, for that position. And the year that I was hired, they hired 25 firefighters out of 2,500 applicants. And that was pretty cool. I still don't know how I got it, but I did. And one of the first parts of rookie school at the fire academy was going through EMT school. Now, most EMT programs are about two years. They're equivalent of like an associate's degree. We were required to finish all of EMT school in eight weeks. <laughs> it was tough. And uh, when we got started, there were people that would just pull all-nighters. I had other fellow cadets that, you know, sun up, sun down. They would get their wives to drive them to the fire academy during the day, just so they had an extra 20 minutes between home and fire academy, sit in the pastor's seat and study their book. It was brutal. We had a lot of people that didn't do well. We had some people that failed out and were dropped from the program. We had some people that barely skated by. But the truth is, it was easy for me. I absolutely, <laughs> if any of my ex-colleagues are listening to this, they're going to hate me for sending this, but I never studied. I would Occasionally listen to the lectures, I'd flip through the pages, absorb the information off of it, and uh, I never had to study externally. I never had to stress, never had to try. It just instantly clicked for me. And at the end of those eight weeks, I graduated by a huge margin at the top of my class of 25, smoked everybody, and probably put in the least amount of work of anybody. I think that's cool because it means I had a propensity for medicine, right? I could 
instantly I figured out heart rhythms and the the orthopedic stuff, the broken bones. I I understood exactly how the muscles worked. I understood internal medicine. I got really, really proficient in things like oxygen perfusion and like all these things that are a little bit complicated. Like I instantly understood them. And about a year later, maybe, no, maybe two years later, this horrible earthquake hit the island of Haiti. Horrible earthquake. And it was 2010, if, if any of you remember that. And in another project that I had in life, I used to spend a lot of time in Haiti. I used to go down there fairly regularly and we would set up medical clinics with a group that I'd met in college. We go down there in some of the, the worst neighborhoods in Port-au-Prince, which is like the poorest city in the Western Hemisphere. It's terrible. So I had a lot of contacts. And when this earthquake hit, I hooked up with a group that uh, we flew in the Dominican Republic and then drove over to Port-au-Prince, Haiti, just to see what we could do to help. So we hooked up with some of my contacts in Haiti and it was devastating. It was honestly like the hardest two or three weeks of my life, bar none. It was awful. This country was ravaged by this earthquake and it was not prepared. The entire landscape is, is hilly, it's mostly mountainous, and everybody lives in little concrete, not everybody, but the majority of the population lives in these concrete shanties, these huts that are sometimes stacked three and four tall on the side of a hill. There's no reinforcement. It's very poor quality concrete. And this earthquake happened, like everything just collapsed. And they still don't know the death toll. They still don't know. It's too many people, too many people buried in rubble, too many people injured. And after a couple of days of driving around doing what we could, we got hooked up with some guys that took us into, they're actually U.S. Marines that took us into the airport there in Port-au-Prince which is where all of these countries were sending their military and they were sending their medical teams in to try to help. So the airport, which was, you know, close to anybody in the military, became this center of medicine and rescue and things like this. And the University of Miami had a mobile field hospital just for things like this, where they send in this cargo plane, they set up a field hospital of tents, and they start bringing in volunteers that are doctors and nurses and medics and everybody you can imagine. We walked into this place. It was like something off of the beginning of Saving Private Ryan, that movie. I mean, it was gory. It was awful. There are hundreds of thousand people with broken bones and massive, massive injuries from rubble falling on them. And now there are people, you know, several days in, they can't get fresh water and they're sick. And I ended up in uh, one of the two tents where they were trying to treat broken bones. And I'll never forget, there was, uh, it's a big white tent, no air conditioning, plywood floor. And between the plywood cracks, you can see grass coming in. You know, it's like not attached, it's just slabs of plywood and just army cots stretching out in this 150 foot long tent, people laying on them, just waiting. And a giant line going outside. I'll never forget when I walked in, there was a father. This is like four days after the earthquake now, by the time we're in this hospital maybe five days, there's a father holding like a little, maybe two-year-old boy. And that two-year-old boy's femur is like snapped in half. Like you can see it, you know, between your hip and your knee, it's your femur. And the father's holding this kid and the kid, the leg is just swinging with an extra joint. And the kid isn't crying. The kid is just in complete shock. He's just looking around these big eyes, the snapped femur where apparently something had fallen on him or something. And it's like four or five days after the earthquake and they had not had medical help. And the dad literally just carried this kid for days looking for somewhere to go. And they're in line waiting to be seen by a doctor. 
And the line is full of this. People with just massive injuries, people that would be in a level one trauma center in the U.S. have been drug on bedsheet sleds from family members for four or five days looking for somewhere to go. So I end up in this tent and uh, I had traveled with a guy who was actually a radiologist, an x-ray doctor from Knoxville, Tennessee. And um, so I was traveling around with him and they asked us, what do you do? I said, well, I'm a EMT. And he said, well, I'm a radiologist. The guy at the front said, oh my gosh, you're a radiologist. He said, we don't have any radiologist here. We don't, we don't know what to do. He said, we have four x-ray machines that were sent down to us in a plane and nobody knows how to operate them. So thousands of people coming in through broken bones, no one knew how to use the x-ray machines. So we ended up setting an x-ray center up, like an imaging center up. We put together this triage unit where people would you know, come in by the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds every day. And they'd come through and I was tasked to learn how to use this portable x-ray machine. So very, very quickly, I picked this up and these orthopedic surgeons who were in the back of the tent doing amputations and like reconstruction surgeries on plywood floors came over and they would work with me a little bit and teach me how to run this x-ray machine. By like the second day, I was running an x-ray machine. I'd bring people in. I'd figure out how to shoot the imaging. I'd figure out how to read the x-rays. I'd figured out exactly what needed to happen. And I started triaging them. Sometimes I, you know, I could see a broken vertebrae and I could analyze what was going on neurologically with them and, and, you know, sensation in their extremities and things like that. And I determined, Hey, we need to put them on a helicopter and send them to the, it was the USS Mercy, the hospital ship. Sometimes I would say, Hey, let's go over here and uh, let's reset this bone. We'd cast it. So I was casting and resetting bones. I was cutting open these old casts where these they're called USAR teams or urban search and rescue teams. Teams would come in and pull people out of the rubble and throw a hasty cast on them and just send them walking. And they'd show up to us five days, six days, one week, two weeks later with a cast with gangrene under it. We'd cut the cast off and have to figure out how do we reset. It was crazy, like stuff that you'd never see in a, in a first world hospital. And it was like thousands of these cases a day. We would get people and we would shoot x-rays and realize, hey, there's no way that like we can salvage this extremity. We'd send them to have amputation done in the back of the tent. Like it was crazy. And after days and days and days of doing this, I really in enjoyed it. It was brutal. Like I said, it was the worst one or two weeks of my life because it was just so sad. But I actually did really, really well at this. And a few days into this, an orthopedic surgeon walks up to me and, and I'd been working with him and, you know, I'd call him over occasionally say, Hey, I think this is what I seen the x-ray. This is what I suggest. And he'd say, yeah, yeah, let's do that. He said, are you going to medical school? Are you? I said, no, I'm just a, just a firefighter, just an EMT, just trying to figure this out. He was like, man, you understand this stuff. He said, you'd be an amazing orthopedic surgeon. And I was like, hey, get out of here. <laughs> nah. And over the next two weeks, like, I think he proved me right. Right. Or he proved to be right. I had doctors from all over the world that were working with me that are like some of the best level surgeons in the world um, working with me and telling me, hey, what on earth are you doing as a firefighter? You should be going back to medical school, be an orthopedic surgeon. You have this stuff figured out like this is. And um, I got to be buddies with a uh, who's actually an ophthalmologist uh, who came down there just to volunteer. And he ended up working with me a lot, just kind of assisting me, which was strange. And uh, one day I looked over and, and he was just kind of looking at me funny. I said, what? He said, he said, why, why are you not doing this? He said, you're working 16 hours a day. 
He said, you're as smart as anybody I've ever met. He said, and you understand this medicine thing. He said, I, I can't look at that x-ray and figure out what you see, Tim. He said, and within five seconds, you know what to do. And we start cutting old splints off and we start resetting bones. And you, he said, I'm completely lost. and I'm a doctor. He said, why, why are you not doing this? And uh, anyways, I got home and like it dawned on me maybe a year later. I thought to myself, what a piece of crap was my dad, right? Maybe for a lot of reasons. But we sat in that Home Depot parking lot and he convinced me that I was not smart enough, that I could not do this, that I was going to fail. Several years later, I aced EMT school with barely picking up a book, just raw intuition. Another year or two later, I'm being told by some of the top trauma surgeons, you know, because like the best people in the world were flying down to work at this triage center or this uh, this um, trauma center. But some of the best like surgeons in the world are literally putting their arm on my shoulders and saying, holy crap, Tim, what are you doing here? Like, why, why are you not in medical school? Why are you not an orthopedic surgeon? And that maybe one year later, and I had this epitome, I realized, holy crap, my dad was an idiot. Like, why was I listening to this guy? Why did I think to myself that he knew better than I did when I had this gut instinct that I could make this happen? And this happens to a lot of us, right? Here's my point. We as humans, specifically as entrepreneurs, are not trusted to make decisions because people don't understand us. People don't understand our ambitions. People don't understand our goals. People don't understand our crazy businesses, business ideas. Think about the most successful entrepreneurs, the biggest brands, the biggest tech out there right now. When those guys started, people thought they were insane. I mean, Thomas Edison was nutty as a squirrel turd, <laughs> according to most people, because he's trying to make this glass ball light up with lightning, right? It wasn't crazy at all. When we think about, you know, the fact that like, we listen to people who are not qualified to know us. It's amazing how many times we let those people convince us what they inaccurately think to be true. Right. And it started raising a question to me, like when we think about people in our lives and we think about influences in our lives, who knows us? Who actually knows us? I had a conversation once with a captain at the fire department. Well, it wasn't a conversation. It was a knockdown dragon argument. But he had grown up with like an uncle-in-law that I had, right? And I'd only been in the family, my in-laws, like five, six years. But it's a very tight-knit family. Spent a lot of time with, you know, my wife's uncles and aunts and cousins. Well, this captain that I had had grown up with one of these uncles, knew him for 50 years, 45 years, knew him growing up through elementary school and middle school and high school and run around when they were young adults. And I was talking about this uncle and this old captain said, oh, that ain't how he is. I said, sure it is. This is how he is. And, no, that ain't how he is. What are you talking about? Well, I've known him for 40 years. I said, yeah, well, I've known him for five years, but his family. And we got this giant argument. Does someone who knows somebody for 40 years, but his like, lost contact, know somebody better than like myself, who's been intimately involved in this family for a few years? I don't think so. But the problem is we listen to people that have been involved with us for a long time. 
And those people might not understand what's actually going on in our heads. Those people might not actually understand the things that have developed in our lives. My dad, who'd known me his whole life, or my whole life, I should say, didn't actually know that in the past one or two years of my life, I'd matured to the point where I could have done anything, right? And I think that we as entrepreneurs listen to people that aren't qualified to give us advice. We listen to our family. We listen to our friends that don't know anything about entrepreneurship, that don't know anything about e-commerce if you're in that space. And we let them tell us that it's not you know, worth quitting our jobs if that's the point you need to be at and, and, and pursuing this full time. We let people that aren't qualified, that don't know anything about this industry, don't know anything about the space and might not know anything about you in the past several years, tell you or tell me that we're not qualified to be business owners. I've talked a little bit about um, my father-in-law before who was just a corporate guy. And he straight up told me before, he said, you know, entrepreneurs are, are risky. He said, they're, they're always one paycheck away from bankruptcy and they're just out to be greedy. Let good enough be good enough, Tim. That's what he said um, when I was a firefighter and thinking about quitting, right? I see this all the time and I see it happen constantly where we as entrepreneurs are in the struggle of trying to decide what information in our brains is more relevant. Is it our opinions? Is it our ideas? Like, are we qualified to decide, hey, I want to run down this entrepreneurial journey? Or our friends and family that don't know anything about business or entrepreneurship, they're telling us we shouldn't. Like, which side is more powerful? Which side is more accurate? Right? We as entrepreneurs struggle with this. And if you're struggling with this, I promise you're not alone. This happens all the time. We're told that we can't do it. And sometimes we listen to that. I want to give you a few examples. Walt Disney. Walt Disney was fired from the Kansas City Star, which was a newspaper. He was fired because the chief editor said that Walt Disney lacked imagination and had no good ideas. What an idiot, right? But this guy was an expert. He was an editor. He told Walt Disney, you can't work here. You have no imagination. You have no good ideas. You know that had to be brutal for Walt Disney, thinking to himself, man, I think I've got some good ideas, but this expert saying, no, you don't. Like, who do we listen to? Do we listen to ourselves or do we listen to this expert? Oprah Winfrey, she was actually an evening news reporter, and she apparently got fired because, you know, like she was too emotionally attached to her stories and things like that. She became a producer for a, a news station in Baltimore. She was fired. Those people that fired her, that she worked for, were convinced she couldn't hack it, but she kept going. Now she's one of the most successful women in the world. She's had one of the most successful talk shows in the world. Like she obviously could do it. But when she was fired from those two positions, where do you think her, her mind was, her mindset was? One side of her brain is telling her, hey, you need to, to push the envelope. You need to keep doing this. And the other side of her brain is saying, yeah, but you've been fired twice. You can't hack it. You can't do this. This isn't meant for you. Right. Old Elvis Presley. Everybody knows who Elvis was. He was performing once early in his career at Nashville's Grand Ole Opry, which at the time was a, just a music mecca. And the concert hall manager after the show came to him and said, you're better off going back to Memphis and driving trucks. That's got to be tough for Elvis, right? The concert hall manager, a guy that's steeped in the music industry, deep in the music industry, knows everybody. Should be an expert, tells Elvis, you can't hack it. You need to be a truck driver. That's all you're going to be able to do. 
It's got to be tough for Elvis, right? Thankfully, he kept going. Good old Bill Gates. Old Bill Gates dropped out of Harvard and he started a business with a partner called Trafodata, right? A lot of you know who Bill Gates is. Most of you have never heard of Trafodata. It was a miserable failure. It flopped. So he was a college dropout, started a business that completely flopped. And you know, a lot of people in his life were saying, I told you so, told you you couldn't do it, told you you shouldn't have dropped out of college, told you you shouldn't have tried to be a business owner. Luckily, the other side of his brain that was saying, I think I can pull something off great here. Later on, went to build Microsoft. My last example that I love is Steven Spielberg. Steven Spielberg is <laughs> amazing, right? Amazing producer, amazing director, amazing creative mind. He applied for the University of Southern California School of Theater, Film, and Television. Okay, SoCal Theater, Film, and Television School. He applied and was rejected three times. Three times. So Steven Spielberg tried to get into this amazing film school and was rejected three times. Later on, he was eventually accepted by another school. And we all know the, the history of Steven Spielberg. Became one of the greatest, if not the greatest, director, producer, movie creator that, that this world has known. My point is, some of the most successful people in this world were told they couldn't do it. They were told they couldn't hack it. They were told, you're not smart enough. You're not, not ambitious enough. You're not clever enough. You're not skilled enough. You're not talented enough. And they kept going. They became some of the world's best at what they did. Me, I don't know if I would have been a great trauma surgeon. I don't know if I'd have been a great orthopedic doctor. But I think it's interesting that I let someone that has known me for a long time but maybe not known me recently. Maybe maybe just because they knew me. Maybe they're a parent. Obviously, they knew me. But maybe they still weren't the best person to sway my decision, to give me guidance, to help me make that decision, right? Because later on, I found out that I have a natural knack for this, and I was really good at it. And later on in my life, just a few years later, some of the best orthopedic and trauma surgeons in the U.S. were telling me, wow, Tim, you, you're way more gifted naturally than we ever were. So I don't know. But I think it's interesting when we as entrepreneurs sit around and wonder what decisions we're going to make, right? Like, is it time to quit our full-time job? Are we going to take our retirement money and invest it in this venture? Are we going to launch these products? Are we going to try this crazy thing? Are we going to invest in this, uh, invest time in the social media platform? Are we going to stay up late at night, losing sleep, trying to figure out this digital marketing thing, right? When we're thinking about that, we have those voices, those external voices, those internal voices. Internal voices usually for us as entrepreneurs are saying, you can do this. And our external voice, a lot of times saying, no, you can't. Which ones do we listen to? Now, here's a caveat. Sometimes we're going to suck at things. <laughs> sometimes, <laughs> sometimes we, um, we need to, uh, Listen to advice sometimes and to be realistic. Truth is, I'm never going to be an Olympic athlete. <laughs> it's just not going to happen. I'm never going to be a top female pop star. <laughs> it's not going to happen. There are things that we can't do. So we do need to have realistic expectations. We need to know ourselves. I'm not saying we can go out and do anything. I'm not saying that 75-year-old George is listening to this podcast and become a NASA astronaut. NASA astronaut. Not going to happen. 
But we do not need to listen to people that don't actually know what they're talking about. We don't need to listen to people that don't know what we're capable of. We don't need to listen to people that don't understand this entrepreneurial realm or the e-commerce realm or the digital marketing realm or whatever realm we're talking about, right? Just make sure that when you're getting advice, when you're having people give you guidance, when you're having people give you opinions, that you're not letting it sway you too much. Because time after time again in my life, I've realized these people were wrong. These people didn't know. And unfortunately, I've had a lot of those people affect my decisions and affect the directions that I went in life. And I have a few regrets. So let me give you a piece of advice on how to actually prove them wrong. You do it a little bit at a time. I, uh, the beginning of this year, 2021, I'm going to start reading a lot of books and I'm rereading one that I've read, uh, maybe a year and a half ago called Atomic Habits. And the premise of this is that an atom is extremely small, an atom, you know, little, little physics atom, but it makes tremendous energy. It can do extremely powerful things, right? When you split that tiny atom, you create nuclear fission, right? It's amazing. Life is the same for us. We can have tiny, tiny, small changes in our lives, in our business, in our habits. But when you stack up these tiny, 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 tiny little things, they incrementally make a huge difference when they're compiled and added up. So my advice to you, if you want to prove people wrong or if you want to figure out, hey, can I hack this? Don't necessarily jump into the thousand foot deep water and learn how to scuba dive overnight. Start small, get some small victories and make small changes. Rome was not built in a day, right? So that's my advice to you. Don't be listening to people that don't know you better than you do. Don't let people get in your head tell you you can't have it done. Some of the most successful people in the world were told no a million times. We all know about Michael Jordan was kicked off his high school basketball team, right? And... As you attempt to start moving down this path that other people have said you can't successfully walk down, do it a tiny bit at a time. Don't bite off more than you can chew because you'll get discouraged. You'll get burned out. Atoms, they're tiny, but they make a huge, huge, huge impact. Go a little bit, a little bit, a little bit at a time. And what's really great about this, folks, is that entrepreneurs have incredible opportunities right now. If I was an entrepreneur in London in the 1200s living in the slums, probably not a whole lot I could have done to change my life. But right now, oh my gosh, with the world of digital marketing and e-commerce and all this crazy stuff that's going on, this this reduction of borders, so to speak, because the world is becoming smaller because I can pick up my cell phone and talk to anybody anywhere at any time about anything nearly, right? It's crazy. I can sell anything to anyone anywhere in the world. Never happened. You know, in, in centuries and, and, and thousands and thousands of years, commerce was run the same way, essentially. And just in the past 10, 15, 20 years, has it changed? And it's escalated even more so in the past 24 months. So if you have this entrepreneurial bug in your head, these thoughts, these, these visions, like right now is the time to do it. There's never been a better time. Don't wait. Take these small little changes, small little habits, small little incremental decisions start stacking them up because right now i think is the best time that we've ever seen especially with the information that's out there and online communities things like that to be an entrepreneur
Let me also encourage you and say that I think you're taking a good first step right now. If you're listening to this, what are we in? About 30 minutes. You've listened to me for 30 minutes, right? You're doing that because you want to learn. You want to listen to someone uh, who maybe I'm not all that wise, but maybe someone has a good uh, a good chunk of wisdom somewhere in there. You're putting in the time. You're putting the efforts. And let me encourage you and say, well done. There are a lot of people whose New Year resolution this year was to learn more and get involved more and listen to podcasts. And they're not doing it, but you are. So kudos to you. Hats off to you. Don't slow down. Keep going. I'm absolutely convinced that 2021, even though it hasn't started off amazing, will be an exceptionally good year. Thank you guys for listening again to the AMPM podcast. If you like what you've heard, please leave us a review on whatever podcast platform you're listening to. Make sure to go and like the Facebook page, AMPM podcast. We drop all the new episodes. We're going to be in 2021 dropping a lot of different content right? Not just podcasts. So a little teaser, we got some stuff coming up. So make sure that you like that Facebook page and follow it to get updated on those things. Hope that you all had an amazing new year and best of luck going into 2021. We'll see you guys on the next episode.